This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. I do want to get right to the Business Week agenda. With us is Gina Martin-Adams, Chief Equity Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence. She's on the phone in New Jersey. Also from New Jersey on the remote access is Dave Wilson, Stocks Editor at Bloomberg News. You know, so here we are again. Uh, the markets uh, started off uh, stronger, but we are definitely off our best levels of the session. And we do see, as Charlie mentioned, that NASDAQ lower. Gina, you've been writing a lot about this. We focus a lot on the elections, but you really are focusing on earnings. Yeah, and the reason, Carol, we're focused on earnings is because I think what's happening in the market is as much about rotation between market leaders uh, at the sector level as anything else. I do think the election has certainly got some nerves frayed, and you see that in uh, the VIX and VIX futures markets sort of escalating over the last couple of, of weeks, but also underlying that overall nervousness is a rotation in leadership out of technology and into other sectors. So we talk about the market being, you know, just kind of blah today, not up a whole lot anymore after a pretty strong start. The reason is because tech stocks have sold off. If you look mm-hmm. at the other sectors, energy stocks are up more than 3%. Materials and industrial stocks are up greater than 2%. But it's really tough, tough for the broad S&P 500 to rise without the participation of the tech sector. And that's an earnings thing. Uh, so even though earnings have beat expectations, the tech stocks have sold off. Why have they sold off? Because their earnings outlook is deteriorating a little bit. Other sectors are going to produce faster growth into 2021, and that's diminishing the case for paying uh, very, very high valuation multiples for tech stocks. And logically, right brain, left brain, you know, if we look at it, Gina, I mean, it makes sense considering the run-up that we've seen in these tech names. And performing, yeah, and-, and performing to support some of it. Yeah, absolutely. And the reason that I think you also want to think about the reason behind the run-up in the tech mm-hmm. names, you know, going into second quarter and even much of third quarter earnings, they were the only game in town. They're the groups yeah. that were actually still printing revenue and earnings growth. That dynamic will change going into 2021. So the investment opportunity set improves. Tech stocks deserved a high valuation multiple relative to the market when they were the only stocks in the market creating earnings right. growth. And they were the only stocks, you know, very defensive sort of, uh, portfolio really included a heavy tech concentration. Well, now that we're moving into a different kind of landscape, um, it looks like the, the opportunity set will improve for other groups, and those groups are more value in cyclically oriented segments of the S&P. I'm going to ask you how much that cycle will last in a moment, but I do want to bring in Dave Wilson and talk to us about this rotation. Dave, what are you seeing? Well, that's it. I mean, if, if you think about tech in the broad sense, I mean, it's not just information technology. It's also communication services where you find, you know, Google's owner, Alphabet, Facebook, and then the consumer discretionary category that includes Amazon.com. Those are the only three groups that are down today along the 11 main ones in the S&P 500. And there are plenty of stocks doing just fine after earnings. Uh, so, you know, what, what you're seeing is, is sort of consistent with the idea that, you know, it's, it's those 
big tech companies have been driving the market, and you know we've seen them come off lately. I mean, Sarah Ponzek, I saw her chart out earlier today. I know mm-hmm. she'll be on this program later on. Uh, just noting that if you go through those 11 main industry groups in the last month, tech has been the worst performer. So, you know, it, it's kind of consistent with what we've seen lately and the way things have kind of been shifting around, but certainly isn't working to the market's favor at the moment. I know some value guys would be really happy to see some market rotation. Gina, come on in, though. How long might this cycle rotation last? Like, I do wonder how much of it is contingent upon the economic recovery, what we see in terms of more relief. Like, I feel like there are some questions what 2021 looks like, which will determine who will continue to be the market leaders. Yeah, I I think that's a very, very good point. If you look at the outlook for earnings as a pretty good benchmark for what to expect, tech is going to undershoot earnings growth for the majority of 2021, which means Mm. this could have legs for, you know, at least until the second quarter of 2021. I think come first quarter, a lot of this will depend on who's in the White House. Uh, You know, clearly a blue wave is going to in my mind, continue the trends that have started in the market of cyclical rotation because it most likely does mean that we get a pretty large fiscal policy package sometime in the first quarter. So even if in the short term you don't get any fiscal policy, investors are going to count on that fact come early 2021, and that's going to keep the value rotation moving forward in my mind. You know, and that also depends on on how much we shut down again. You know, obviously mm-hmm. Europe is is shutting down again. Most of us are assuming that the United States generally will stay open, allowing for reasonable economic conditions to maintain through the winter, but that's a wild card. Uh, You know, we could have a much more difficult economic scenario in the short run. Even then, though, I think most investors are going to take that opportunity to add to cyclical earners in anticipation of, of the policy outlook. I got to. I got to say, I saw that France number. Heard it this morning. Uh, not this morning. I think it was about one o'clock or a little bit after one uh, our time. I mean, a record more than fifty-two thousand new coronavirus cases, and it certainly made me sit up and take notice, Gina. Yeah, I, absolutely. And I think a lot of people are taking notice and kind of wondering what our response is going to be as we mm-hmm. head into the winter. And it, you know, obviously, the escalation in infections in the U.S. is problematic as well. Will a new administration? Um, you know, clearly this new administration will would approach the virus contagion potentially differently than the past administration if we do have a new administration in the White House next right. year. So there's a lot of uncertainty without a doubt. Yeah, exactly. And Dave, that kind of leads us to our chart. Quick tweet tease on what you got coming up in the chart of the day, because it is election related. Yes, it is. I mean, think about all the law and order issues that have come up during this race. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's been a plus for the companies that make guns and ammunition. I always, this watching this connection always just kind of blows my mind. All right, Dave Wilson, we're going to look forward to that. Thank you so much. Gina Martin-Adams, our thanks as always. Chief Equity Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence. Both of them joining us on the phone from New Jersey. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Um, So much to get through in terms of the virus. And I've got to say, uh, we are seeing big surges, uh, numbers rising, especially in the Midwest, whether it's North Dakota, South Dakota, Wisconsin. Wisconsin, in fact, I think is third behind North Dakota and South Dakota. 
Dakota when it comes to new cases per capita. Nebraska and Iowa also up. Uh, and a look at some of the averages over the past week in Minnesota, the trend in new COVID cases and hospital admissions also upward. Let's get to someone who has really been so wonderful with us throughout the pandemic. Back with us, and we know she's busy, Dr. Penny Wheeler. She's president and CEO at Alina Health. They've got 12 hospitals in the Minnesota area. They've got uh, physicians, clinics, retail pharmacies throughout the Twin Cities uh, metro area in eastern Minnesota. She joins us uh, once again on the phone from Minnesota. Dr. Wheeler, great to have you back with us. How are you? Thanks, Carol. It's good to be back with you. Yeah, it's anxious times here as we see those case counts uh, go up and the hospitalizations go up as well. So, so uh, there's some anxiety about that for, for certain. I am wondering what's the what are the conversations, Dr. Wheeler, that you're having? You know, I mentioned the Fran- uh, the number over in France. We're watching Europe. I think everybody in the U.S. is wondering, okay, is this where we are headed? France reporting a record uh, 52,518 new coronavirus cases. That's a big number. Uh, and I wonder, are you guys setting up or the, the facilities within your system and that you are involved with, are you guys ant- anticipating another big surge? Or seeing it already? Yeah, we are. We are starting to see it already. I would say that you know, in our, you know, in in Minnesota, you know, you just mentioned Carol the surrounding states to Minnesota, all the yeah. Dakotas, Wisconsin, and Iowa. Right. We've all had about a higher than twenty percent positivity rate. We've been creeping up, and we've been seeing it around our border towns too. But we're in about eight percent proto, you know, positivity rate. And I can tell you, our hospital takes care of about a quarter to a, a third of all. Um, those in Minnesota affected by the virus, wow. and uh, we have doubled our census in COVID cases over the last two weeks. So it's coming quickly. Yeah. What, what's, what's you know, I'm curious, you know, certainly in some of the conversations we've had with within the medical community is that we didn't have the playbook back in March, right? We were just scrambling to figure it all out, get the equipment, get every, you know, the places, you know, get the systems, the necessary systems in place or the equipment in place. I do feel like we are smarter now, and I hope so, but I do wonder what are you seeing or what have we learned from the past six to seven months, whether it's equipment but also treating patients. Yeah, totally smarter, totally smarter in how we're treating patients and supporting other organ systems and knowing how to treat them. So fewer people who are in our intensive care units are actually succumbing to the disease and dying. So that is good good news because we've learned more and we have more, more treatments and more um, support available you know, we do have the right now the stuff available. We increasing testing significantly. I'll tell you the biggest challenge for us mm-hmm. is uh, staffing, mm. staffing this appropriately for the surge. Because of course, some of our healthcare workers are also people who are getting ill or having family members that are ill. So I, the plea would be, boy, please do the distancing and masking. I know it's getting old and hard, but you're also protecting our healthcare workers significantly by doing so. You know, I think it's really interesting that you're saying that because um, I had a conversation actually with the CEO of Chipotle last week and I said, you know, same thing. You know, what has changed in your world, you know, since March and April in terms of the virus? And he said one of the most recent challenges is that our own employees are getting sick and it makes it harder to run the restaurant. And I do think this is going to be maybe the story for the second, third waves is, you know, making sure that whether it's in healthcare, whatever industry, that we've got the necessary workers. And I know in healthcare, it's critical. Yeah, critical to just really the health of the community and our ability to treat people. So I worry that our capacity limitation will be healthy, available staff. So that will what, be what limits it won't be on the it won't be on the PPE right now. 
it looks like it won't probably be on the testing. It will be on that. So what do you do? Can you reach out to, or what do you do? Do you reach out to your surrounding community, but they're also facing the same thing? Is right. there is there federal assistance that can help in, in this kind of situation? Not, you know, we're not looking to federal assistance, but we mm. are collaborating wonderfully well among, you know, the systems here so that we're trying to just balance things out. If somebody doesn't have ICU availability, who does? So we're not, you know, this is a time again for collaboration, not competitiveness. And then we're, we're continually working with each other. Like two of us are involved, for example, in vaccine trials mm-hmm. that are going on. So we're trying to look, be proactive about, uh, you know, enrolling people in, in, in those trials as well. Yeah, I do wonder, you know, that, like I said, that this is going to be one of the, the main stories at this point. Um, I do wonder, too, that one of the things that we saw, certainly when we were in the midst of it here in the New York metro area, that there was really this great kind of sharing of equipment, sharing of knowledge. And, you know, what are you seeing, you know, as you deal with the entire, you know, healthcare community, or are you seeing that continued cooperation and assistance uh, around the country? We're seeing we're seeing the collaboration and cooperation here in spades. Mm-hmm. And while we can get you can manufacture equipment, what you can't do is manufacture talented, compassionate um, staff. And so again, that's the that's the area that I think all of us are most concerned about. Dr. Um, Wheeler, one thing I wanted to know is, in terms of those getting the virus, are the demographics changing? Is it older, younger? Is it a mixture? I'm just curious what you guys are seeing. Yeah, the the demographics aren't changing in terms of those um, disproportionately affected who are Black, Indigenous, people of color. So that's not changing. We are seeing a slight shift to younger um, uh, people getting getting the virus, uh, um, but uh, otherwise the uh, profile. And obviously, the, most of the very severe illnesses and sadly the deaths occur in those who are uh, in the older age groups or those who have chronic illnesses. So that's staying the same. Yeah, so very, very similar. Listen, you know uh, better than most, it's all about, you know, a vaccine. Although when you, I, I, I'm curious how you feel about this. I feel like we continue to have conversations where more and more members of the medical community say, yep, a vaccine is very important. But also really important is wearing your mask, social distancing, doing all the, all those simple things that can really make a difference in terms of our fight against this uh, virus. Well, no question. Overemphasizing those over and over again. I heard one of your wonderful masks, uh, <laughs> uh, public service announcements uh, while I was waiting. That's so important. The vaccine is important. It's, it's not an end-all, be-all, though. We're involved in a, a Johnson & Johnson right. ensemble vaccine trial with enrollment of people, and we're actually participating. <laughs> Uh, you know, especially focused on populations of color, black, indigenous, and people of color as participants targeting specific zip codes. Uh, sometimes these these studies are done too much on a, on a more of a, you know, a white um, population. Um, yeah. And this is disproportionately affecting uh, people of color. So we're actually targeting and asked to target our our vaccine trial accordingly. And then I think, Carol, you said it just right. On the other side of things, we want a vaccine that can be trusted for sure and that has safety. And that trust is important to people being able to actually get the vaccine. But remember, even the even great flu vaccines aren't 100 percent, you know, successful. Right. Right. And then there's a proportion that won't doesn't take them. So, you know, I also don't want people to think that it's, uh, you know, we're flipping a switch and it's all over at that point, too, but it's even a, when we get a safe one. Well, and that's a really good point. But it, I also think, you know, we 
continually talk, um, you know, Penny, about that when we get a vaccine, we've got to make sure it gets out to those most vulnerable populations. Sure. As as you guys are targeting, you said some zip codes specifically of, you know, black and indigenous, you know, color people. And I do wonder, do you have a lot of faith in the system that when it gets to, you know, distribution, logistics, that it will get to those people who really need it most? And what do we need to make sure that that happens? Boy, I do, I do believe that will be true. You know, I'm an optimist at heart, but I think that those people who are most vulnerable and most willing, you know, uh, those in, in uh, institutional settings that are elderly, uh, those who are disproportionately affected, I think their acceptance rate will be higher. And when we have a vaccine that we can uh, trust, I think that that will be going. I don't know that we will have widespread vaccine available, mm. you know, right off the bat. But I think that those populations, because of the, um, you know, that the vaccine won't be widespread yet, uh, will be uh, the first one targeted for hey, sure. One last question. I wonder what might surprise some of our listeners, especially here we are, what, eight months in of dealing with yeah. this virus. Um, and you've seen it, like I said, front row seat for better or for worse. Um, you know, what would surprise everyone about this fight, especially as it goes uh, on? You know, I would, I'd have to say our staff, mm. the resilience of our staff, putting themselves on the line every day to try to care for others and going there day after day. Um, despite their own personal fatigue, obviously this is affecting us all personally as well as professionally. And all that that brings and having school-aged children that they're schooling at home right. and then coming and trying to take care of uh, people, uh, they are remarkable, just yeah. remarkable. So I don't know that that's a surprise to everybody, but when you see it day after day after day, you, you, you the human spirit and its resiliency in trying to work on behalf of others is pretty incredible. Well, I'm guessing as a leader, it's nice to see your staff, right? Really just be out there, especially when everybody is stressed out on so many different levels. Um, Penny, thank you so much. Dr. Penny Wheeler, she is president and CEO at Alina Health, uh, joining us once again on the phone from Minnesota with uh, a virus update. Up- update, excuse me, and just talking about uh, the collaboration that they're doing with uh, Johnson & Johnson as well and really targeting some of those specific zip codes, those specific, you know, and most vulnerable populations. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. So we've talked about this, I feel like, with several business owners, many in the restaurant space, including Danielle Ballou. It affects all kinds of uh, industries, businesses, all sizes of businesses. It's really about how the big insurance companies have, by and large, refused to pay business Business interruption claims. This next story gets into it. It's going to be featured in this week's issue of the magazine. Let's get into it. Uh, Bloomberg News legal reporter David Yaffe Bellany uh, joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C., along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber with us from Brooklyn. I feel like, Joel, the stakes here are enormous for everyone involved. Yeah, that's right. And when David came to us with this uh, pitch, I think he really just immediately got our attention because we're about to see uh, a case brought to a court by an attorney in New Orleans. And it it is basically the shot across the bow. And I think all eyes are going to be on it because it will be sort of, it's basically business versus insurance. And there's probably billions of dollars in the sway in terms of how this one um, sways effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he happens to be an incredibly colorful character as well. <laughs> so that made the, the story that much more enjoyable to read. It's a movie David, in the making, I have to say. <laughs> exactly. D- David, who is this lawyer that we're talking about? 
He's a plaintiff lawyer in New Orleans named John Hotelling, um, who's basically been, been suing insurance companies after major disasters since Hurricane Katrina. So he has a track record of representing businesses in coverage disputes, and this dispute over business interruption insurance is sort of the latest iteration of that. And how much money could we potentially uh, be looking at here? Like, what, what what's involved in this particular case, and then what cases um, to come? So the amount of money in this particular case in New Orleans isn't entirely clear yet because the restaurant that he's representing hasn't actually filed a claim. Um, They're preemptively suing to kind of establish the legal precedent that insurers should be on the hook for uh, damage caused by the pandemic. Um, But if you you know, broaden this out to all the businesses across the country that have business interruption insurance and are suing to force their insurers to pay up. One industry estimate puts it at between $52 billion and $223 billion a month that uh, insurers would have to pay to cover the damage caused by the pandemic. And, and the argument that the insurance industry is making is that this would essentially wipe out their reserves. It's just not feasible for them to cover this many claims. I have to say, I mean, this kind of gets to, like, why do you have insurance, right? And and this whole idea of unprecedented when it comes to acts of either natural disasters or, you know, just unexplained events. And I feel like that's going to be talked about a lot, David, when it comes to these cases. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, uh, the other argument that, that the insurers keep making is that it's totally unprecedented because mm-hmm. we've had catastrophes in the past, but they're, they're isolated to a certain geographic region. There's a, there's a hurricane in New Orleans, which destroys businesses there, but at least it only affects, you know, one city or, or a few cities. Um, whereas the pandemic is like a hurricane happening in every city in the country at the same time. And every business in the country is disrupted in a major way, and it's just not possible for the insurers to respond. Um, The interesting thing is, you know, the pandemic took most parts of American society by surprise, but actually the insurance companies have been, have anticipated this moment for a couple of decades Mm -hmm. after after SARS, um, a few of the insurance companies were forced to make big payouts to companies in China that had to shut down um, during during what well you know SARS was sort of raging through Asia in the early 2000s, um, and after that, insurance companies inserted language in some of these policies that seems to exclude damage caused by a virus from coverage. Mm-hmm. And part of the legal battle is whether that language should actually apply to the pandemic. Um, there are also policies that don't include that sort of language. So the insurance companies have been have been thinking about this for a while. So they're not they're not entirely, you know, unprepared as this kind of legal battle ramps up. Okay, David, can we talk about the Lambos? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, I said this guy was colorful, and, and literally he has colorful cars. Um, what, what is with the Lamborghinis? So John Hotelling is a, is, a, is a big luxury car enthusiast. He has an extensive collection of Ferraris and Lamborghinis. He, uh, he told me that, that as a child growing up in New Orleans, he had a, a catalog, a kind of Lamborghini catalog or buyer's guide that he would flip through as a kid, sort of fantasizing about cars that he might be able to afford one day. And he kept this catalog. And when he actually became really wealthy um, after you know winning tons of big cases in the early 2000s, 
you know, he went through this catalog and decided that he would buy every single model of Lamborghini advertised in it, and that was 17 Lamborghinis. And so he's got those parked at a garage near his mansion in, in New Orleans, right, right near the, this famous garden district. Um, and, you know, he's added to it over the years. He races luxury cars. He races them in a, in a sort of in a big race in Italy every year. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty vast and, and impressive collection of luxury vehicles. What's he like though? I mean, it sounds like just, first of all, it is like reading a novel, your story. Um, but just the dinner that you start off with, what is he like? I mean, how real is he? He's he's a he's a real person and he's really passionate about about this cause. I mean, mm-hmm. he's he's not somebody who just showed up on the scene and started suing insurance companies because he thought that this was, you know, this was like the biggest biggest chance to make money off the pandemic or something like that. Um, he's he's been kind of an advocate on behalf of insurance policyholders since Katrina, which happened in his in his hometown. Um, he's really knowledgeable about these issues, um, and he's done a lot of work to sort of unite um, different types of businesses around the country in various lobbying efforts to get you know laws passed that could enforce insurers to pay out. Um, so, so for him, it's a it's a kind of really personal battle, um, right. and you know, not just kind of a moment of of opportunism. Um, I just have to say, I love how it, it wraps up that you know. While the insurance companies are saying, wait, this could kind of knock us, you know, out of business too, it feels like. He's saying, I love the quote that, you know, if I hit them 1% enough to buy a fleet of Ferraris and a private jet and houses all over and a humongous mansion with tens of millions in antiques in it, they don't care. It's a drop in the bucket. I mean, it's just, it's it's kind of interesting uh, to hear his take on this. And uh, he sounds like quite a character. All right. It's definitely a must-read, and everybody should check it out. Um, David, thank you so much. David Yaffe Bellany, he's legal reporter at Bloomberg News. Uh, Check out the story at Bloomberg.com, and on the Bloomberg, it'll be in uh, the current issue or the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. Joel Weber, thank you as well, editor at Bloomberg Business Week, joining us on the remote access uh, from Brooklyn. So a great story. I'll put it out on Twitter as well, because it's interesting. This is one of the big issues. We've, We've talked with Danielle Ballou. We've talked with a lot of folks in the restaurant industry who were counting on their insurance policies to kind of help them through and then kind of had a harsh uh, awakening to see that they weren't necessarily covered. And as we know, uh, the restaurant industry razor thin in terms of margins and a lot of them just on the edge. Any of the smaller players, it's been really tough, but it's not just restaurants. It's all kinds of businesses. And uh, that is certainly what this case is all about. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Hey, here we are, election eve, just hours before polls officially open on the east coast of the United States. Last day of campaigning for President Trump and former VP Joe Biden. A hundred million early votes already forecast to be in. One third of the Senate also being elected. Race has become tighter over the last few weeks. Man, it's just one headline after another. Bloomberg News political contributor and Iona College professor of political science, Jeannie Zeno, is back with us again from New Rochelle, New York. Jeannie, good to have you here. It is here, almost. It's hard to believe when you just said election eve, I thought she can't really. Wow, it is. And, you know, I would just add another number that I read earlier today, which is $14 billion spent by federal candidates, committees, and outside groups raised and spent this election cycle, breaking all records, obviously. But it's, you know, it's almost a mind-numbing number to imagine spent on an election. 
Well, you know, we always say it's not different this time around, yet it feels really different this time around. Is it? You understand elections. You see cycles. I mean, is are there things that make it different this year? Absolutely. Obviously, the pandemic, number one, and the amount of people that have engaged in early voting. You know, we just talked the last week. It was, you know, I can't remember where we were at that point, 50 million or whatever yeah. it was. And now we are over 93, 94 million at the latest. This count. is a third of Americans almost. It is. It is a stunning number. And I think, you know, if it's any indication of what we see on Tuesday, we're going to see, you know, record breaking or near record breaking, very high turnout. And it's astonishing. And I think one thing we don't do enough is give credit to the American public and also the poll workers who are out there making this happen because, you know, it's, you know, there was a time several months ago when we thought maybe people simply wouldn't go out to vote or wouldn't engage because of COVID. And yet we've seen exactly the opposite. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Uh, I agree with you. And I think we were concerned about a lot of times at polls, it's a lot of older individuals who were going to be nervous about being there uh, because of COVID. So one thing I've got to ask you, I mean, you watch the polls, there are lots of them, I just kind of go through it every morning. And, you know, we're reminded that last time around, we got it wrong. Um, Is there something different about the methodology this time around that can make us look at certain polls or polls in general, as being more reliable this time around? There are. There are some differences. The number one difference is that we have a lot more polls in 2020 than we had in 2016, and particularly in the battleground states. And they are polling later. Like, you know, we have seen polls over this weekend still coming today, which are giving us indications about important states like Pennsylvania. But the sheer number of polls and then the pollsters did try to learn from 2016 in areas where they may have missed. And things like trying to do a better job of voter turnout and, and reaching those voters who are actually going to engage. Of course, the pandemic has, you know, thrown a monkey wrench into all right. of this. But we have seen a different tact. And I, you know, we don't know yet if it's going to pay off because there is still the question, are people being honest with pollsters? You know, are these numbers actually reflective of what we're going to see? But I think the one thing to keep in mind, the polls have been remarkably steady Uh throughout all of these changes in this election cycle. And by and large, they have shown Joe Biden in the lead, although in some cases within a margin of error. And so that's where we are as we approach Election Day. But again, you know, things can change at the last minute. Well, what do you make to of Listen, we talked a lot. I know uh, Bloomberg Business Week magazine did a whole story on like the shy Trump voter, right? That people back in 2016 wouldn't come out and say we're going to vote for Donald Trump. And yet they did you know, privately, uh, ultimately, when they went and pulled the lever. Uh, I, I was watching some coverage of people talking about shy Biden um, followers, whether you're in a very kind of normally red state like of Arizona, where you're afraid to kind of come out and say something. So I do wonder, are there a lot of, you know, are we still in a situation where people maybe don't want to say who they are voting for? I think so. I, I, I do think so. So we, you know, this this notion of a spiral of silence where people feel that something is not, you know, politically ex- or socially acceptable in uh-huh. their circles. 
So they won't certainly admit it to a stranger who calls them on the phone for a poll. Um, so whether that's, you know, you're going to support Joe Biden and you're in a red state or you're going to support Donald Trump and you're in a blue state, I do think we know that that is out there. The extent of it, I think, is a big question. We know the Trump team feels that there are a lot more of those people out there than, you know, many researchers have, have been able to document. But some of this is just going to take after Election Day comparing what are the actual results to what people were telling the pollsters. Everything at this point now becomes, you know, guessing within a margin of error and a probability. What do you think are going to be ultimately the key groups that maybe show up at the polls that haven't in the past? Is it minorities? Is it women? Um, what is it? Or that, And if maybe shifted who they were supporting last time around. I think women, um, white women, we're going to be looking at particularly in the suburbs. Um, mm-hmm. I think seniors, uh, we're seeing a, a much more marked support among seniors for Joe Biden than Democrats have enjoyed in two decades. And I would also say I'm keenly interested in young people. They seem to have a lot of energy. Will they or won't they turn out? They usually don't turn out in as record numbers as, you know, their their counterparts. But I'm interested to see if they do. And then, of course, over the weekend, we're hearing concern amongst Democrats about African-American turnout in key states like Florida. So that's also going to be interesting. And, you know, we talk a lot about shifts. Donald Trump shifting over some African-American men. They're estimating about 20 percent which is not huge, but much better mm-hmm. than Republicans normally do. What, I mean, and what is, you know, still the issue? Is it the economy? Is it virus? It was interesting, the coverage this weekend, and it was all maybe because of the spikes that we're seeing in cases once again in this country and just globally. You know, is it the virus? What are people voting on? Typically, it's do you feel better? Do you have a job? Do you feel economically better? We've just got about 30 seconds, and then we'll come back and talk some more. But it, what is it? I'm guessing it's going to be COVID, but I don't know for certain. That is the big question. Can I just ask you, first of all, was it a little crazy, some of the stuff that was happening on the campaign trail this weekend? I thought so. (laughs) I I was watching and, um, you know, I think most worrisome to me was the, you know, disruption that occurred in terms of the Trump supporters disrupting the, you know, the bus of that to me. And then the president, you know, seeming to support that. That's very troublesome. And I know you've probably seen, I've seen things boarded up in New York City and Washington, D.C., that's a scary proposition because we may not have results on Tuesday night. And if that encourages people to respond in that manner, that's that's going to be really upsetting. Well, so, Jeannie, what do you make of the president come out and saying, basically, you know, we're going to have a decision. We're going to de- I'm going to declare like, you know, uh, the results of the election. You know, it's it's. You know, like so many things with Donald Trump, like nothing I've ever imagined hearing a president say, um, I can't imagine that he will do that. Chris Christie this weekend said he would not. Um, But the president, as you mentioned, said he would. He's going to be at the White House apparently tomorrow. And he said whether the votes are counted or not fully, he will declare victory. Um, uh, You know, I think it's going to depend an awful lot on the margin. If it's a, you know, I think if it's a large margin that Biden has won by, I don't think it'll happen. If it's close, though, I think we're going to see them filing lawsuits. And I think we're going to see 2,000 
you know, in, on steroids yeah. in, you know, a few states versus just one. Well, and I do wonder, I mean, from what I understand, Florida, I think Arizona, North Carolina, those are some of the, the states where early voting has been happening for a long time. And they've already count, been counting for a couple of weeks. I mean, what are the key states that we need to kind of watch? Because you've been so smart in reminding us. It's not, it's why we don't look at the national polls. You've got to look at the individual states, right? It's 50 separate elections going on, essentially. And it all comes down to electoral college and who gets the vote. So what are, what are the states you're going to be watching really closely tomorrow night? I think early tomorrow, we should be watching Florida, Georgia, North Carolina. As you mentioned, Florida, for instance, has a long history with mail-in ballots. There, we expect that they will be releasing results early. And if the, you know, Joe Biden wins one of those, mm-hmm. that would portend a bad sign for the president. If the president holds out in all of those, and the big questions to me are Georgia and North Carolina, then this will shift to the, you know, the Midwest, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan. Um, so I will be watching for those early Sunbelt states first, because if the president now, of course, if the president exceeds expectations and does really well in those states, right. then he could, you know, match what he did last time around. But we suspect it will be at least closer than it was last time. What are the states that we've got to be really smart about that they're only starting early voting counts, you know, on Election Day, which we know physically is going to be probably impossible to count and get to all of them? Is it Ohio? Is it Pennsylvania? The biggie to me is going to be Pennsylvania, yeah. because we know that, you know, the, the sheer number that they are receiving and the way that they're going to be proceeding and when they start means we probably won't get elect, won't get results out of there on Tuesday night. And, of course, they're receiving them for well, also North Carolina. So I think those states, you know, North Carolina, we may know a bit earlier, but I think Pennsylvania is going to be the big one. And again, that's going to be critically important if everything comes down to those Midwestern states. And of course, Pennsylvania is the one that the president has the best shot of, of winning. Um, you know, Wisconsin, Michigan, the polls at least seem to suggest Biden has a much larger margin there. What are you anticipating tomorrow night? Um, I'm anticipating probably one of those scenarios where the president holds some of those states and we do come down to a Pennsylvania. Um, You know, I would be stunned if Joe Biden won Florida, but if he does, it's going to be a very, very good night for Democrats. Florida has not been kind in the past, even the last gubernatorial race to Democrats. So I'm really curious to see uh, from those early states that we get results out of, you know, if Biden happens to take that one or a Georgia or certainly a Texas, this could change the map for many elections to come and also bodes very well for Joe Biden. But I suspect the president will do a bit better and then we may come down to a Pennsylvania. What does it say? More broadly, I think about your teachings, Jeannie, in class, in that, you know, we've been having conversations in my home that, I mean, it really is so close, despite you could have, depending on where you are in the country, it could feel like it's a very red country or a very blue country, but yet it really is very divided. It's very divided. And I think, you know, to me, from a broader perspective, I think if we go back to 2016 and you have somebody winning by three million votes and somebody else uh, getting the president, winning the popular vote Mm -hmm. by three million and somebody else getting the presidency by 77,000. I think that discrepancy, if we see, and I'm not sure, but if we see something broader than that this time around, I think we really do have to ask about whether we should have an electoral college. Because, you know, to for 77,000 people's votes to count that much more than 3 million or more, mm-hmm. that seems highly undemocratic to many people. And I think that only sort of 
frustrates this sense that we don't live in a fair, transparent democracy. Yeah, I can't help but think if the the forefathers were watching all of this and saying, you know what, guys, we created that system a long time ago. It's time to maybe do a little bit of a rethink, right? (laughs) Absolutely. I think that's a big thing. And I think, of course, we have to rethink polling, too, if we got this this wrong. (laughs) Oh, man. Such good stuff. I love, love, love your insight. Thank you so much. And I know you've been... uh, doing a lot for us and you're going to continue through uh, election and thereafter. Bloomberg News political contributor and Iona College professor of political science, Jeannie Zeno on the phone from New Rochelle, New York. I'm driving in my car I turn on the radio How about you let me drive? Oh no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us is David Deeds, President and Chief Investment Officer at Point View Wealth Management. $7.3 billion in assets under management. David is with us once again on the phone from Summit, New Jersey. David, nice to have you back with us. This is a jam-packed week, man. Uh, between the election, between the Fed, between the jobs report. There's just so much going on. We're still getting through earnings. How do you make sense of it? And I'm curious, are investors, are you finding more new money come in? Or what What are some of the interesting trends that are happening right now? Yeah, absolutely. So we've really got a trifecta of issues that are confronting us. That would be the election. That would be the vaccine. That would be stimulus. Um, and what I've been telling investors really is just a matter of of time here before we're going to get some resolution. Hopefully we know more, at least by the end of the week, as to how the elections works out. Um, investors, I think what they want now is just kind of a clear signal as to what's going to happen. It's an uncertainty. I think investors have gotten comfortable that no matter matter who wins, their marching orders is going to be clear, you know, get the vaccine going, get the stimulus going, get this economy going again. So I think they're comfortable there. Um, You know, in terms of uh, the stimulus, I don't know whether we're going to get anything in the uh, lame duck session here, but we'll definitely have something before the end of January. In terms of what clients and investors are doing right now, I think they're basically just just staying put here. Um, uh, obviously, October was a rugged month. On the other hand, the smaller guys, the smaller fries, the Russell 2000, mm-hmm. um, they were up about 2% in, in the month. So obviously, it's a mixed market, and we're seeing some rotation to some of the areas of the market that have been left behind. Carol. Well, that's exactly how we kicked it off uh, on this Monday. We were talking with our Gina Martin-Adams, and she just talked about market rotation and you know, said specifically it's really an earnings thing, you know, that tech was the big story back in the second quarter. And rightfully so, those valuations were justified because they were producing earnings. But now we are seeing, you know, a change in terms of thought and that we're seeing market rotation. She thinks that tech will undershoot earnings growth for much of 2021. Do you agree with that and that this market rotation might stay with us for some time? Or if we get more stimulus, then that could change things? Bottom line is stay diversified. You know, 
you know, calling. But everybody the says timing. that all the time, David. <laughs> calling and the, the timing of, of a rotation is always difficult. But what we have seen here is that although by and large, other than perhaps for Twitter, the mega cap tech uh, results were, were stellar. The problem is they're up anywhere from 37 to 74% year right. to date. And so the valuations for two stretched. It was that they weren't meeting expectations. They weren't meeting the whisper numbers. So that, call, that tells me you have to be cautious in that area. But what, what I am seeing here is generally dividend-paying stocks hold their own, if not outperform. But starting in February, when we start to get the COVID coming in, the 80 highest dividend-paying stocks of the S&P 500 are down 26%, while the S&P is flat, pulled up by those mega cap techs. Now, what, what can I tell you from that? That disparity is not going to happen in the next nine months. So the question is, do the dividend payers start moving up or the mega Tech start moving down. It's probably a little bit of both. And that's where these dividend paying stocks, I see a lot of opportunity, particularly as you pointed out earlier, the Federal Reserve is really going to be on hold for a long period of time. It's such a great old kind of play, right, uh, when it comes to dividends. But I mean, when you look at some of these companies, and it, I guess it explains why you like a name like Coca Cola or maybe a name like Chevron. Yeah, so let's talk about Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola, in terms of beverages and volume, is three times the size of its next largest competitor in that non-alcoholic space. That gives you so many scale benefits. Now, normally, you can't get a company like this, which has the dividend close to 4%, and here you have it. It's down 25% from its uh, 52-week high. So why is that? It's because guess what? We pay less for Coke when we drink it at home as opposed to when we go out to the ballpark mm-hmm. or to the restaurant and buy it. And I think at some point, maybe a year from now, could take a while, we will be back to normal. And of course, you're going to get that 25% pickup in the stock price of Coke as it goes back up. And meanwhile, you're collecting that 3% plus dividend. That seems to me a low risk way to stay in there relative to when you have a, you know 80 basis points on the 10-year treasury. All right, Chevron, talk about a dividend. I mean, that's uh, a killer. We're talking about over 7%. Yeah, you know, it's 7.3%. And what I also like about Chevron is it's a member of the exclusive dividend aristocrats club. What does that mean, Carol? That means it is not only paid the dividend, but increased it for 25 years in a row. That shows to me the commitment to make sure you're returning uh, the profits to the shareholders. Now, certainly energy has been under pressure. We're paying the lowest prices at the pump now as we have in 12 years. Right. But with the amount of deficit spending, with the economy potentially under rebound, my guess is energy prices go up from here. Chevron, conservative balance sheet, one of the largest in the world, is well poised to take advantage of that. I mean, the stock's down 40%. So you've got to really, I mean, I understand the dividend, but you really do lose a lot in terms of the share price. No question about it. People who bought it a year ago yeah. are hurting. But right. I'm talking about getting involved now. And, of course, to, to regain that 40% with the way the math works, that's almost a double. Look, if that takes six years plus collecting your 7%, I think you're going to do better than most people in the marketplace. So one more name I just want to ask you about, Aflac, the insurance guys. Uh, what is it? What's the thinking there? Same thing? Well, so Aflac is in that beaten down insurance group, but the beauty of an insurance company is that they don't have that um, 
uh, tricky loan portfolio that they have to wonder whether the, the loans are going to be repaid. You know, here's a company, again, who's increased that dividend for 37 years in a row. Right. Normally, that dividend has a one handle. Now it's over 3%, but they're only paying a quarter of their earnings out for dividends, so they have room to continue to increase it. In fact, that dividend's gone up 8% per year for the last 5 to 10 years. It's a supplemental insurance program. You know, as we know, everything's focused on COVID. People are cautious about spending on anything that's not an actual essential. But I do believe that people will come back to continuing to expand the AFLAC program. They're big in Japan. The U.S. dollar's been weakening. That helps them. And, of course, they have a right. huge stock buyback program, 121 million shares they want to buy back as soon as they can. All right. Going to leave it on that note. David, thank you so much. David Dietz, President and Chief Investment Officer over at Point View Wealth Management. $7.3 billion in assets under management. Uh, and liking a common theme, uh, the dividends, Coca-Cola, Chevron, and Aflac. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.